Well, one of the reasons I enjoy communion, among many, too long the list, is when I stand up here to preach on Sundays, I'm thinking about what we're going through and what we'll talk through together. And communion gives me an opportunity just to stand there and look at your faces. And that may sound strange, but uh, I sure love you guys. And it reminds me (laughs) when I have the privilege to just look at the people I love. And so I'm grateful for that. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the life of Jonah. And don't uh, let the size of this book fool you. There are tons of truths packed into this short little story. We're going to be doing about a chapter a week. So let me encourage you to do something. Let me encourage you to take time each week and look ahead and read the chapter we will be going through together the following week. I am confident that if you will be committed to doing that, then you will gain so much more out of what we'll walk through together having done so. So just take some time each week to look at what we will be looking at together. Um, It'll be worth your while. With that being said, let's jump into Jonah chapter 1. If you'll basically go to the right of midpoint in your Bible, go past Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, a little bit later you'll find Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. And let's begin reading in uh, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Let's begin with what verse 2 calls the great city, because that's no exaggeration. In fact, that city was so great that many of the ruins of ancient Nineveh still exist to this day. Nineveh was located to the northern part of Iraq. You can kind of see it uh, in the northeast from where you see Jerusalem, up there at the top of the map. I want you to kind of get oriented to to where this is. It's just north of the modern-day city of Mosul, which is south of the Tigris River. So Nineveh would have been just north of the Tigris River. This next slide shows you kind of an artist's depiction of what that city might have looked like in its prime Nineveh eventually became the capital city of one of the world's greatest empires, the Assyrian Empire. Now, even though the the city was magnificent, it was its inhabitants who had a reputation. The dominance of the Assyrian uh, Empire was based on its military strength. The Assyrian army was a war machine. It was an unprecedented war machine, easily the largest, most well-equipped, well-trained fighting force the world had ever known up to this point. And so their dominance was based on fear. Their reputation was one of bloodshed. In fact, when you think Assyrians, think ISIS. But ISIS as a world power. Now that's a scary thought, isn't it? But much like we see at ISIS today, the Assyrians were known for their brutal tactics. They would literally fillet their prisoners alive. They would drag them behind animals until, until they died. 
And as this actual artifact represents, they would impale them as a public display of their power and dominance. Now you can see why verse 2 says that their wickedness was of such magnitude that it couldn't escape God's notice. In other words, their brutal behavior was just begging for God's judgment. But instead of sending judgment, God first offers the hand of mercy. Now, as you might expect, This made absolutely no sense to Jonah. Why would God show mercy to people who are so merciless, right? Not to mention the fact that even more puzzling to to Jonah would have been the fact that God actually prophesied through Hosea that he would use Assyria in judgment of Israel where Jonah lived. In fact, that passage is uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 5, and it says this. They, Israel, will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king. Because they refuse to return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high... None at all exalts him. Many believe that Hosea and Jonah were contemporaries, and if that's the case, then Jonah would have certainly known of this prophecy. So why would God give mercy to a people that he would use in judgment against Israel? Do you kind of get an idea of why Jonah might have been a little bit confused and somewhat reluctant? (laughs) with what God was asking of him. But here's what's interesting. Jonah's reaction is actually a reflection of Israel's heart. See, God's people were called to be a light to the nations, to represent his character in the world. But as Hosea said in his prophecy, God's people were bent on turning from him. They were unwilling to carry out his mission. That's Jonah. Jonah represents the heart of Israel. Eric Mason is an African-American pastor who spoke on the book of Jonah, and he summarizes something that we just talked about, I think, so well. Listen closely to what he says. He says, Jonah, and I would go on and add all of Israel by this time, lost his compassion For a broken and hurting world. His theology was right. He knew the character of God. But his practice was wrong. Why? He says he responds according to his own opinion. Of what he feels the Ninevites deserved. Not what God told him to do. In other words. Jonah's own opinion. Became more important. Than God's command. Look at how he continues in verse 3. But Jonah, in response to God's command, rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into uh, it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
God said, get up and go, and Jonah got up and left, literally going hundreds and hundreds of miles in the opposite direction. I want to show you this. The black, oh, you can't see that very well, but you can get the idea. The black box is where Jerusalem would would have been located. Asher up to the top and to the right, northeast of Jerusalem, would have been where Nineveh is. Now go way west. Look over on this side of the screen. Down on the tip, the bottom of Spain, that's Tarshish. So not only is it a long way away, Jonah literally would be taking his life into his own hands because that trip across the Mediterranean Sea would have been treacherous. See, ancient merchant ships were not built for that kind of travel. They were very basic at best. I think I have a slide of what those look like. They looked fine. They did okay when the weather cooperated. But in the midst of the storm, they were at the mercy of the sea. And so Jonah is literally risking his life in order to run from God. And personally, as I look at this account, I don't believe that Jonah had any intention of ever coming back. Not only is Jonah running from God, I believe he is, in a sense, walking away from his faith. Jonah is rejecting God's plan because he does not understand God's heart. It just doesn't make sense to him. So he quits. Jonah rejects what he does not understand. He resigns from his role as prophet and chooses to navigate life on his own, which, listen to me here, is never, ever, ever a good idea. And we're going to see that unfold. Look at verse 4. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below in the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Now remember, I told you that these ships were at the mercy of the sea. Well, in an instant, the sea became merciless. To the point that the ship was threatening to break apart. It's really interesting in the Hebrew, it literally means, it literally says that the ship was a nervous wreck. (laughs) It really paints a picture of what's going on here. To the point that these very experienced sailors start to panic. They instantly become religious. It says that each one cries out to his own God. This would have been very typical in that ancient culture. They did not believe in one God. They believed in many gods. And they were trying to figure out which one was so angry. So each one called out to their own God. All the while, it says that Jonah is in the bowel of this ship, sound asleep. Now just think about that for a minute. It says something about Jonah's confidence in his selfish pursuit. I don't know about you, but when I've got something on my mind, something that I'm a little perplexed by, I don't sleep very good. Right? I'm running that through my mind over and over again. But apparently, Jonah isn't second-guessing his decision. He's very content in his rebellion. And why? Because he's convinced that he knows better than God. And the same is true for us. 
when we walk away as well. Now, I want us to continue in verse 6. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn of whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Isn't it interesting how a pagan man awakens the prophet Jonah from his spiritual sleep? In Hebrew, when the captain approaches Jonah, he uses almost the exact same words as God used when he first called Jonah. He said, get up, cry out to your God and pray for his mercy. That's precisely what God said to Jonah in the beginning. (laughs) But now, Jonah is the one who is in need of God's mercy. Maybe he'll feel differently when he's the one who needs to receive it. And just in case there's any doubt about what God is trying to do here, they cast lots. Again, a very common practice in that ancient culture. Basically, it was usually a couple of stones. Each one had a light side and a dark side. They would take those stones and they would roll them like dice. Two lights means yes. Two darks means no. And if it's mixed, you roll again until you get one of those two answers. So they cast lots and they go through each sailor. No, 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 until they get to Jonah. And it says, yes, the lot fell on Jonah. And look at what happens in verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. As we see, the the sailors approach Job with a barrage of questions. They want answers, and they want it quick. And Jonah's response was simple and to the point. I'm a Hebrew. I fear God. And he talks about the single God, the God of the heavens and the seas. Basically, Jonah's answer points to God as the supreme power behind their problem. The response of of the sailors says that the men became very frightened, extremely frightened. In other words, they were terrified no longer because of the storm but because of the God behind the storm Jonah has brought these men into the midst of God's wrath he's admitted his rebellion they know he's running from the presence of the Lord and now they are being punished for his crime now just think about how ironic that is Instead of walking in obedience and preaching repentance, Jonah is walking in rebellion and bringing forth wrath. Instead of inviting people into God's mercy, Jonah is bringing God's judgment upon the people. As Hud would say, sin splatters. 
there are lots, there is lots of collateral damage from our sinful rebellion. It never affects just you. Look at how he continues in verse 11. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy, as if it could get any worse. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. And I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For, the Lord, for thou, O Lord, has done as you have pleased. So as we see here in the beginning, the soldiers in a, a bit of a quandary. Jonah has instructed them to throw him overboard in order to save their life. Now, I think that's a little bit interesting. Why didn't he just jump? Maybe he was unwilling to take responsibility even now. But in doing so, they would risk making this angry God even angrier. So they don't want Jonah's blood on their hands. And so what they do is they start to feverishly try to row the boat back to shore. Now, that may sound logical to us, but I promise you, this goes against all navigational wisdom. These are experienced sailors, and I can assure you, they are doing exactly the opposite of what they know they should be doing. Because to row that boat into the shore in that kind of a storm would have immediately been suicide. The first thing they hit would obliterate the ship, and they would all drown. Not a chance of survival. So why in the world are they doing that? It's because they fear God. And they would rather die trying to save Jonah's life than be guilty of his blood on their hands. But the more they try, the worse the storm becomes. And so, in desperation, the sailors cry out to God. Then, did you hear what I just said? In desperation, the sailors cry out to God before Jonah does. The sailors pray for God's mercy before Jonah does. The sailors are acting more like believers than Jonah is. Then each of them, instead of calling out to their own God, now plea to one God. In God's sovereignty, He's bringing about repentance among the pagans despite Jonah's unwillingness to comply. Do you see that? I don't know if this is a true conversion for these sailors or not, but what I do know is that they are abandoning all other options at this point. And whether they are truly believing or not, this is where it's got to start either way. So I think it's very possible. Now look at verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We're going to stop there. The sailors throw Jonah overboard. The sea calms. 
and they respond in reverential awe. They have recognized God's awesome power. They've been a recipient of God's amazing grace. And so they bow in humble obedience. They sacrifice in worship. Meanwhile, Jonah is floating in the sea, and we're just going to let him tread water for a little bit. But here's what I want you to think about in terms of what just happened. The sacrifice of one man's life saved the sailors from God's wrath. Now, you and I both know that Jonah doesn't die. It's not the end of this story, but as far as the sailors are concerned, he does. Because as soon as that great fish comes up, Jonah disappears, and you know everybody's thinking, he's done, right? But more importantly, Jonah didn't save their life. They are saved because of the mercy of God. Jonah wasn't walking in faithful obedience. He was in open rebellion. Remember, the pagans look more like believers than Jonah does. And that's because Jonah is not the main character in the story. God is. God is the main character. God sovereignly accomplished what Jonah was unwilling to do. He showed mercy in response to the sailor's repentance. And he gave grace to Jonah, even in the midst of his rebellion. The story of Jonah is ultimately about the heart of God. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. A God who will one day sacrifice his life in order to save us. A God who will one day shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Having mercy on us as sinners, even in the midst of our rebellion. A God who doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to eternal life. There's a passage in Second Peter that says exactly that in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So as we consider this account, I just wonder how many of us are walking around going through life like Jonah, trusting in our own opinions instead of faithfully following God's word, Customizing our obedience according to what makes most sense to us and rejecting those truths that we just don't understand. And if that's the case, let me encourage you to reconsider. I think Jonah is teaching us to trust God's heart more than our own understanding. I think Jonah is teaching us to align our life with his character instead of giving people what we think they deserve. To forgive as we've been forgiven. To love as we've been loved. To show mercy in the same way that we've received mercy. 
And when we think about love, let me remind you, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's seeing a need and literally walking the other way. That's what we see happening with Jonah. For you and I, it's knowing the gospel, but being unwilling to share the gospel. Last weekend, our small group watched a study, a little sermon by Dr. Tony Evans, great pastor, man of God. He actually spoke on this passage in 2 Peter, and he said something that really struck me. He said, we cannot alter God's promise, but we can affect its timing. He looked at this passage in verse 9 that talked about how God is not slow about his uh, promise, that the promise is set. But then he goes on in verse 11 where it talks about hastening. So let me look at that with you. Verse 11 says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for, and here it is, hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the promise. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That will happen. It is a promise. But apparently, our conduct affects the timing. See, verse 9 says that God is patient towards you. And if you'll look at the context, the you is believers. The you is you and me. It says, I am patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to eternal life. And we need to understand that believers are not the ones who will perish. Our salvation is secure through our faith in Jesus Christ. God is patient towards us. Because we have been called, like Jonah, to be a light to the world. We have a mission to put the gospel on display so that those who are destined to perish might come to repentance. The point is this. God has patience with us when we're like Jonah. When we lose our heart. For a broken and hurting world. When we have no concern for those who don't know Christ. He's patient. When we get so wrapped up in our own lives that we lose sight of the needs of others. When we live for ourselves instead of living for the sake of Christ. But here's the good news. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. He's unwilling to let us be comfortable in our rebellion, even if that means bringing a storm upon our life in order to get our attention. The only right response is what we see in the sailors. Humble reverence sacrificial obedience because of God's amazing grace. So let me encourage you. 
if God has your attention this morning, then do not harden your heart. His pursuit of you is the evidence of his love for you. We should be most fearful when he stops pursuing. I'm convinced that the greatest judgment that we could ever have upon ourselves is for God to let us go our own way in our rebellion. The fact that he is pursuing you is the evidence of his love for you. So do not harden your heart. Our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. Everything we believe about what it means to follow Christ is based on a relationship. A relationship of love, sacrifice, of hope. Our God is faithful. And so we have a great purpose in which we are called to live for. And so may we be faithful to carry out what he's called us to do. It's all about a relationship. One that you have. One that you can experience. And then one that we should all share with others. Let's pray together. Father, we agree together and acknowledge because of our own experience that every meaningful relationship is ultimately based on trust. And so this morning, Father, we want to come to you and confess that maybe we are in places where we haven't been trusting. And we want to come to you this morning with humble hearts and confess to you that to go our own way is at great risk. And we want to come back to you in great faith, trusting in you, aligning our lives with your heart, not getting so wrapped up in our own lives that we lose sight of the needs of others. Father, help us live for the sake of Christ and for the praise and glory of his name. We love you, Jesus, and we are so grateful of your faithful love for us. We hear you, and we want to know you. So may we walk towards you and not run away. We pray this in your name. Amen.